Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's season finale episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most bizarre, the most high-profile murder cases in Maryland are examined and profiled. This season, season three, relationship murders or husband-wife boyfriend-girlfriend type murders are discussed and profiled. On this season finale episode, the murder of 54-year-old Jacqueline Smith is profiled and the unsolved stabbing murder of Mia Henderson is examined. Now, regardless of your religion or whether or not you believe in God, sometimes I wonder if people believe in heaven or hell. Specifically, do they believe that if you are a good person, you know, a person with a good heart, or if you are genuinely good to people, that when you leave this earth, you'll get to heaven? Do they believe that if you are cruel and torturous to people, especially good people, that you're burned in hell for eternity? If that's the case, there is definitely a special place in hell for Mr. Keith Smith. Deception, fake, a fraud, a liar, whatever you want to call him, somebody must have done him wrong or something when he was younger or something because he was no stranger to breaking the law. Thinking somebody owed him something and basically doing whatever the fuck he wanted to do. This was his lifestyle. With a history of drug and alcohol abuse in December of 1999, 34-year-old Keith did have a job driving for FedEx, but because he got too many points on his license, he got fired from that job. Instead of him trying to find another job, he decided he was going to take a different route and start robbing banks. So he got himself a pellet gun and a ski mask and got to work. Wearing a ski mask and holding the gun, he marched into the old First Union Bank on York Road in Timonium. Choosing this particular bank because it was close to the Interstate 83 and it would make a clean getaway, Keith came in the back ordered everybody on the, he came in the bank, ordered everybody on the floor while he jumped over the counter and grabbed money out the teller's money station. After he took what he wanted, he jetted out the back door and he jetted out the back door that was in the back of the bank. He got in his little gold Nissan Maxima and drove off to his home in Woodlawn. On his first robbery stint, he got about $15,000 and he used it to supposedly pay bills that had been piling up. Three months later, Keith did the exact same thing. He robbed the exact same bank, and this time he got about $16,000. The third time was the charm, and five months later, Keith went back to the same bank and tried to do what he had already gotten away with two times before. But this time, the police were on to him because a witness had given a description of the car that he had been using in the bank robberies. And Keith, he so smart and confident that he used the same car in every single robbery. A report was put out for the Gold Maxima, and police officers in Baltimore City saw the car after a few days later. A few days after he committed the third bank robbery, they saw him driving a car in East Baltimore, but when they tried to pull him over, Keith sped off and the chase was on. Keith ended up crashing his car in West Baltimore trying to get away from the cops and he was arrested immediately when the police went to his home and searched it 
they found about $20,000 in cash in a black bag that was taped together in bundles. Keith admitted everything. He told the police he started robbing the bank because he was struggling to take care of his then eight-year-old daughter by himself and he was desperate because he had just lost his job. Plus, to make matters worse, he had just found out that he was HIV positive and he had a fuck the world mentality. The bills were kicking his ass and he was gonna make moves one way or the other. In 2001, he pled guilty to robbery with a deadly weapon and fleeing from the police and he was sentenced to 12 years in prison. He served only six of those 12 years and on February the 9th, 2001, 2007, Keith walked out of prison a free man. He tried to stay on a straight and narrow and he hit the jackpot when he met 50-year-old Jacqueline Ann Trevain, a single mother who had successfully raised two sons who were both the members of the United States Coast Guard. Jacqueline herself was an electrical engineer who worked at Aberdeen Proving Grounds, which is a United States Army research facility. There's no telling what she ever saw in Keith, a convicted felon with HIV and a history of drug and alcohol abuse, but they got married in 2014. Keith had to have thought that he had it made. Jacqueline was obviously the breadwinner and Keith was gonna milk that until the cows came on. He did have a job as a CDL driver for US Lumber, but there were cracks in his four-year marriage Perhaps Jacqueline realized that the honeymoon was over. Perhaps she realized that she had made a big mistake. Perhaps she realized what she had done and that this was not gonna work. Maybe she realized that she married a bum and maybe she wanted to get out of it as soon as possible. But Keith wasn't trying to let his cash supply run out. Ain't no way he could let his lifestyle go. And who would want him then? A convicted ex-drug addict with HIV? With a felonious, a felonious record? Where was he going to find another lady like this? Plus, how dare she leave him? <laughs> On the night of December the 1st, 2018, Keith, now 51, was out celebrating his daughter's 27th birthday with his wife at the American Legion Hall in Baltimore City. Jacqueline and, Jacqueline and Keith's daughter didn't get along and Jacqueline didn't really want to be there, but because she was still playing her role of a good wife, she supported her husband and joined him. It would prove to be a fatal mistake. Sometimes having a good heart can get you killed. Shortly after midnight, a 911 call came into the dispatch center. When, while Keith raced to John Hopkins Hospital, he frantically told the dispatcher that his wife had just been stabbed and he was racing her to the hospital. Once he got to the hospital, the doctors tried their best to save Jacqueline, but the 54-year-old was pronounced dead shortly after arriving at the hospital. She had been stabbed five times in her chest. Two of the slashings were so bad that the knife went all the way through her chest cavity and caused her lung to collapse. One of the wounds, the fatal one, penetrated her heart and caused death in a matter of minutes. The police immediately questioned her husband, who was the driver of the vehicle, and they questioned his daughter, who was a passenger in the backseat. Keith told the detectives that he was 
he was driving his daughter home after they had all celebrated her birthday and he stopped at the corner of East Chase Street and Valley Street because he and his wife saw a lady with a baby holding a, holding a cardboard sign begging for money. He said his wife was moved to help the lady. So he slowed the car down and pulled over so his wife could give the lady 10 hours. Then a dude who had been with the lady walked over to the driver's side of the car and asked him if he could thank his wife for kicking out the 10 hours. Keith said he was like, sure, boy. Then the man suddenly pulled out a kitchen knife and started stabbing his wife multiple times. Then the dude grabbed the necklace that Jacqueline had around her neck and her wallet that was in her lap. Then the dude and the woman carrying the baby and the son ran off on foot into the night. That's when he called 911 and rushed his wife to the hospital. The guy came out and killed my wife, man. They stabbed my wife, man, he cried to the 911 dispatcher while his daughter cried along with him. Keith's daughter backed his story up and both of them appeared grief-stricken when they told the media of how devastated they were. The cowards, they took my wife's life. I hope it was worth it because you're gonna answer to that one day. You're gonna answer to it, he told TV cameras while fighting back tears and demanded that the police abolish panhandling. Jacqueline's murder gained national attention, especially after Oprah tweeted, this story struck my heart. I've done this a thousand times, but will think twice before doing again. To JS family, I hope her death gives people rope to change. Calling his wife his soulmate, a day or two after she was killed, Keith went to Jacqueline's job and started asking how he could get access to her life insurance since he was the beneficiary. But before the insurance company would pay anything out, they got a call from the detectives telling them to hold off on paying anything to anybody because her husband hadn't been cleared as a suspect in her murder yet. Plus, when the detectives performed tests on Keith's cell phone, they discovered that his cell phone put him in the area of Drew Hill Park by the zoo around the time he said he was driving through East Baltimore. Other things he told the police wasn't added up either. First off, he told the police that he had let the passenger side window down so the dude could supposedly thank his wife and the dude proceeded to stab his wife but the investigators found that there was blood on the inside of the passenger side window the detectives also noticed that at first he said he never saw the weapon then he said it was a kitchen knife first he said that the woman that was holding the baby and carrying the sign she was wearing a brown coat then he changed the coat to a blue coat the police searched the area extensively and found not one person who could give them a description of a homeless begging couple with a baby and a cardboard sign. There was almost 30 surveillance cameras in that area and they were all searched and not one of them put their car in the area at the time that Keith said that Jacqueline was killed. None of the cameras showed no couple begging either. They didn't find no blood on the ground. Detectives checked the homeless shelters that were in the area. They found no description of a woman with a baby. None of that. They found no fingerprints of this mysterious killer on their car. The cops never found no knife. They never found no cardboard sign. Nothing to back up his story. So they asked him to come in for questioning again. This time, they told him his story wasn't adding up. Plus, why would cell phone towers, they asked him, like, why would cell phone towers put your phone in the middle of Drew Hill Park? Something you never said anything about. 
when the detectives asked Keith about this, he had the nerve to be like, oh yeah, 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 I forgot to tell y'all about that. I forgot to tell y'all that we took a wrong turn. We got lost in the park for like 10 or 15 minutes and we stopped to just look at some pictures we had that we had just taken at the party. You know, I forgot to mention that. I thought I told you about that, but my bad. When the detectives brought his daughter back in for questioning and asked her why was her cell phone pinging in Drew Hill Park at the time of Jacqueline, at the time that Jacqueline was killed, she was like, I don't know. We were never in Drew Hill Park and I don't even know what you're talking about. Then she shut the interview down by asking for a lawyer. The detectives let them both play their little game, but right after the interview, Keith packed up his house that he shared with his wife in Aberdeen. He changed his cell phone carrier, packed his shit up in a U-Haul, and moved to West Haven, Florida to lay low. His daughter wasn't coming, so he sent her a new cell phone in the mail from Florida. The detectives got a warrant to tap their... To, basically to tap their cell phones, and after tracing Keith's phone, they discovered that Keith had made calls to several airline companies trying to figure out how to get to Cuba, Canada, Jamaica, and the Virgin Islands. One-way tickets, but he was he shot those ideas down once they told him that he needed a passport to enter these countries, and he didn't have a passport. His actions were fooling absolutely nobody. It was fooling no one. Um, Jacqueline's family never liked Keith from the beginning, and they thought his story of some panhandler stabbing his wife was hella suspicious, and they didn't buy it for a second. First off, Jacqueline's brother told reporters for the Baltimore Sun that his sister didn't even get along with Keith's adult daughter, and the fact that they were even in a car together was so suspicious and out of the ordinary. Second, the fact that he sat front row at her funeral one week and moved to Florida the next week raised all kinds of eyebrows like what were you running from they voiced their concerns to the detectives but the detectives weren't stupid in this case these type of dumb killers always tell on themselves and the detectives decided to use a wait and see approach once keith sent his daughter a burner phone the detectives couldn't monitor their conversation and keith drove back to merlin this time he was leaving with his daughter so he scooped her up told her to tell her two kids goodbye and together they hit interstate 95. today is the craziest day of my life i am officially on the run i feel so bad i won't be able to see my children this is so fucked up this is not the time to panic keith's daughter wrote in her diary as they began their stint on the run heading from mexico an all points bulletin was put on their rental car and the texas state trooper saw their car traveling through Brownsville, Texas, about 17 miles or so away from the Mexican border. Where are you headed? The state trooper can't be heard on his dash cam asking Keith when he pulled him over. Oh, just me and my daughter, just out sightseeing, just riding around. That's what he told the trooper. Arrested at a gas station in Harlington, Harling, Hollinger, Texas on March the 3rd, 2019, three months after Jacqueline's murder, both Keith and his daughter were booked into the Cameron County Jail, and on March the 21st, 2019, they both were extradited and flown back to Maryland to face first-degree murder charges. His daughter had dyed her hair blonde and was almost unrecognizable from her appearance on TV just three months before. The arrest shocked nobody from Baltimore. We all knew they were guilty. We just wanted to know why it took three months to make an arrest. 
when their trial started, his daughter, fully sober now, she realized that basically she had been used as a scapegoat, really. I mean, just to boost up her father's alibi. That man knew that his daughter was on drugs. He knew she would do whatever he asked. But in September of 2019, she finally admitted to the detectives that the idea of some panhandle establishing her stepmother was a complete hoax. She finally came to her senses and pled guilty to being an accessory after the fact and agreed to fully testify against her father. I have no idea why he didn't just plead guilty and accept his fate. But no, Keith said he was taking this shit to trial. I mean, what did he have to lose? Plus, it's a way to get out of your cell for the day, I mean, to be honest. But anyway, in December of 2021, Keith's trial started and his daughter took the stand against him. She stared straight ahead and didn't look at her father as she told the court that on the night of that the night Jacqueline was killed, she had taken heroin pills in the bathroom of the American Legion Hall and she was high as a kite and nodding off in the back seat when she noticed that her father took a, de a detour through Drew Hill Park on his way to drop her off at home. She said he slowed the car down in Drew Hill Park and without any warning at all, he leaned over and plunged a kitchen knife into his sleeping wife's chest. He stabbed her. I saw blood on his hands. He went into the woods with a knife in his hands. When he came back out, he didn't have the knife, she told the court in a soft voice. He came back in the car and said nothing. He put a towel on her head and drove to East Baltimore to call 911. She testified that her father was calm and quiet until he made the 911 call. Then his demeanor changed and the acting started. She said her father told her to stick to the story and tell the police that Jacqueline had been stabbed by a panhandler. She told the court that my father raised me since I was a little girl, so we had a pretty good relationship, but I was also strung out on drugs and scared for my life. She described her stepmother as a nice woman who was always nice to her, and she felt conflicted and confused when they had when they went on the run, when he had to go on the run and leave Baltimore. My father made me leave the state, she said. Keith's own brother told the court that Keith had told him that Jacqueline had been talking about divorcing him and that Keith had approached a mutual friend of theirs and had asked him if he would help get rid of his wife. Keith basically had no defense, man. He left his attorneys with absolutely nothing to work with. And the only thing his public defender could say in his defense was, I mean, just because he had inconsistencies in his story don't mean he really, he killed his wife. It don't. His lawyer was like, where's the murder weapon? And she was like, you know, y'all can't believe a word his daughter is saying because she's a drug addict. She's on drugs. They offered her a lesser sentence. She can't be trusted. Blah, blah, blah. That was basically Keith's only defense. And the jury deliberated only five hours over two days after a trial that had lasted three weeks before finding him guilty of the first degree murder of his wife on this occurred on December the 9th, 2021. Born on the 4th of July, Jacqueline's mother told the court at Keith's sentencing hearing that it was no coincidence that Jacqueline was born on Independence Day because she was so bright and colorful like holiday fireworks. She said it pains her greatly that she'll never hear her daughter's voice or see her smile again. She told the judge that Jacqueline was a family person, a good mother, who had always been very smart and loved poetry. 
She said Jacqueline had wanted her marriage to work because she deeply believed in family. I will never forgive him, she insisted. Jacqueline's oldest son was also allowed to speak at Keith's sentencing hearing. I feel ashamed that my aunt had to pay for my mother's funeral out her pocket while the murderer sat in the front row, he read while telling the court that he also suffers from panic attacks and night terrors ever since his mother was killed by a monster that she trusted. When Keith was asked if he had anything to say, all he could muster was, I'm sorry. I have never seen facts that showed more premeditation, willfulness, and intent than this crime, the judge said before sentencing Keith to the maximum sentence allowed of life in prison without the possibility for parole, plus three years for assault with a deadly weapon with intent to injure. For her role in Jacqueline's murder, Keith's daughter was sentenced to five years in prison with three years of probation. This will never bring her back, but we are elated and we feel that justice has been served. That's what Jacqueline's older sister commented to reporters after Keith was sentenced. Whew. Now this murder was notorious in Merlin because first off, the national attention. I study murders, I've been doing it since I was 12. This was a first that I've ever heard where it was blamed on a person, with a homeless person with a son. This is the first time I've ever seen it in Baltimore history that a person was killed and they blamed it on a, basically a homeless person. I mean, when this happened, nobody wanted to help out homeless people in Baltimore. People was driving past them. They was like, I'm not giving y'all anything since y'all want to act like that. I mean, it's just, ugh. and first off, he claims, I got to say this part. He claimed to love his daughter so much. She was used. A lot of people were mad at her too. Yeah, she's not, you know, the most, I guess, favorable person in this whole case, but he used her. I, I, it was obvious. I mean, he needed somebody to say, oh, I was, I was here or she was there or this is what happened. He needed somebody to corroborate his story. And of course, he, he used her for that. I mean, I feel bad for her. I mean, it's, it's good that she cleaned up in jail and good that she cleaned up and got her bond together and did the right thing for her stepmother because her father was a piece of shit. I'm sorry to say that, but her father was a piece of shit. He he wasn't no stranger to jail. He knew in the prison. He knew how, to, how this worked. I believe that, you know, I believe he didn't care about his wife at all. I believe that it was a plan from probably when he was locked up that he was going to meet somebody. He was going to, you know, wine and dine them or whatever. He was going to do what he had to do and take that money. Um, I believe he's going straight to hell. I bet he, like I said, I bet he never loved her from the beginning. I, and I, I believe he planned this while he was locked up or something. That's what they do. Um, did she know? I wonder if his wife knew that he had the criminal record. I wonder if his wife knew that he had HIV. I mean, you see what happens when people are too nice and don't want to Maryland case search somebody. I'll do that while you're standing, while I'm standing right in front of you. I don't trust nobody. I mean, this is how men treat women that are too given, too nice. They know they have a good heart. You know, she's trying not to be judgmental of somebody, but yet still look at you. You, you can't change somebody who don't want to be changed. You know, I read somewhere that his daughter, her mother, uh, she helped her with an attorney and they got her um, a well-known attorney in Baltimore that's known by the name of Margaret Mead or her son or somebody. That costs money. 
And where was her mother at when all of this was going on? Why was she raised by her father? It's a lot of unanswered questions in this case. And I'm going to dig deeper and find out more information. And when I do, trust me, my listeners, y'all will be the first one to know because this is one I, I can't I can't let go yet. It's closed, but I can't let go yet. I, it's still a bunch of unanswered questions that I need to know. For this season, season three, each unsolved homicide will profile a victim who was transgender. While conducting my research on unsolved homicides in Maryland, I was completely shocked, mortified, like stunned at the number of victims who were transgender. Second, I was surprised at how it seems like no real investigating was done, no questioning of witnesses, no questioning of family members, no questioning of friends, associates, none of that. It seems like they got killed. It barely made the news and that was it. It was like, because if their murder appeared to be sex related or flat out killed because they were transgender, then the investigation was ignored or closed or just nothing was done. Many of the victims' friends or families of the trans of the transgender um, victims, they had to find out that their loved one was killed from the news or social media. And detectives just assumed that because the victim was transgender, that they were out tricking or prostituting or living a double life or whatever. You know, they were doing this, they was doing that. I mean, whatever. Even if that was the case, what were you doing? What does it say about you? The person going around you know, looking for sex. Why are you mad at them for what you like? Be mad at yourself. Like, who made you the judge and the jury over who lives and who dies? Like, people kill me with that. So, with that being said, for this season, season three, all of the unsolved homicides that were featured, the victims were transgender. And for this final episode of season three, this episode is no exception and the stabbing death of 26-year-old Mia Henderson will be profiled. 26-year-old Mia Henderson didn't give a fuck what other people thought about her. She was going to live her life the way she wanted. Born as a male and also known as Kevin Long, Mia lives her life as a transgender woman. She struggled with her demons and did have a record for alleged prostitution on the and did have a, a record for alleged prostitution. On the early morning of Wednesday, July the 16th, 2014, a little after 5 a.m., a neighbor who lived near the 3400 block of Piedmont Avenue near Lake Ashburton in northwest Baltimore later told reporters for the Baltimore Sun that she saw Mia standing around the area waiting for customers like any other morning. The neighbor said that she had seen Mia and other transgenders in the same area doing what they do before and on this particular morning, she saw Mia on the corner near the alley. She later told reporters that she saw a light-skinned black male in a white t-shirt and blue jeans and a white baseball cap offer Mia $10 for a date. Next, she said she saw the two of them walk down the alley together. Walk down the alley together. Later, she saw the same man, the same dude, strolling up the alley, looking all nervous and suspicious-like. A little later, around 6 a.m., Mia's body was found in the middle of the alley. She had been brutally stabbed in her chest, arms, and back. 911 was called, and she was rushed to a local hospital, but pronounced dead shortly after. Mia was the oldest sister of then-LA Clipper NBA player Reggie Bullock, and once he learned of his sister's death, he tweeted, 
All I can say is my brother showed me how to live your own life. Love you so much, man. Gone but not forgotten. R.I.P. Kevin. At least I sent the last love you to my brother. Now, while Reggie didn't reference his reference her as Mia, who knows? But a month after she was killed, a visual was held in her honor. You can't hurt people for being who they are. It's just wrong. It's a hate crime. You shouldn't have to be afraid just living your life. An organizer for Hearts and Ears, Inc. said to reporters at the vigil. Described by her friends as soft-spoken, harmless, and a good person who wouldn't hurt a fly, Mia was one of three people killed in Baltimore that day in just a 12-hour span. According to the detectives investigating Mia's murder, Mia fought her attacker back hard, and in 2015, a man was arrested because his DNA was found under Mia's fingernails. The man was arrested and charged with first and second degree murder and first degree assault. After a suspect was arrested, Reggie tweeted, just want to take the time to thank Baltimore police for aggressively pursuing the murder of my brother. My family and I are now able to rest our hearts knowing that this person is off the streets. But at the suspect's trial later, his lawyer ate the state's case up and was like, just because you found some DNA under a murder victim's fingernails don't mean nothing. He was like, my client had consensual sex with the victim, yeah, but he was miles away in Hagerstown while Mia was still alive. And he had phone and work records to prove it. And our charges were dropped against him. In October of 2019, Reggie also lost his 22-year-old sister when she was shot in the chest and killed in an also another unsolved homicide. Both of his sisters murdered, Reggie later commented to reporters. He lived as himself. He taught me how to be myself. He taught me how to take care of the family. He was happy with being who he was. He wasn't worried about how others felt about him. A person that can isolate the whole world out and not care about other people's feelings is a strong person to me. That's one of the biggest things that I got from him. Not surprisingly, the police have nothing else, no other suspects, no other leads, no magic clues, nothing, and they need the public's help. So do the right thing, people. If you have any information that can lead to an arrest or a conviction in this unsolved homicide, please call Baltimore City Cold Case Detectives at 410-396-2100, or you can send a text to 443-902-4824. You can also email them at homicidetips, with an S, at baltimorepolice.org. Once again, those numbers are Baltimore City Cold Case Detectives at 410-396-2100. You can send a text to 443-902-4824. Or you can send an email at homicidetips, with an X, at baltimorepolice.org. You can remain anonymous people and I know somebody has to know something. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine tingling, hair raising, bizarre episodes. Also, please be sure to check out all of the true crime books that are related to this podcast, which are Marilyn's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, Marilyn's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, 
and the upcoming Maryland's Most Notorious Murders 2009-2020. All of these books, as well as my other True Life books, are all available on Amazon.com in paperback or as an ebook. Be sure to tune in next week where another high profile, another high newsworthy, noteworthy, and bizarre homicide will be profiled, examined, and discussed on Maryland's most notorious murders. This has been a real life production. Thank you.